how good it is to stand in the power of Christ. I hope you understand what that's like and that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So glad you could be at Parkview here with us today. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here if we haven't had a chance to meet. And glad that you can join us for worship today. I want to remind you that even though we don't pass the plates ever since COVID, that giving is an important part of your worship as well. We encourage you to do so. Parkview's running behind this year. This fiscal year we're running behind. So if you haven't been faithful in your giving, we encourage you to do, do so and honor the Lord in that way. And make sure you do that with a spirit of joy and cheerfulness, giving to the one who's given everything to you. Our women had a retreat this weekend, and I've heard great things about it, and so we're thankful that that could happen. We're thankful for Andrea and her leadership team and all who made that happen. We give God praise for that. Last week, we were in Acts 19. We'll be there as well today, starting in verse 21, so you can turn and be ready or have your device on. We looked at while God's power is supreme, the enemy is not without power. And we who are Christians must eliminate any ties to the enemy and to his ways. Paul ministers in Ephesus for more than two years, the longest stretch of ministry in any one place. And all the residents of Asia, that's Asia Minor, and that help, if it might help you uh, keep, have an idea what that is, think of the um, first chapters of Revelation when we see the church of Thyatira and Laodicea and, and Smyrna and such that's uh, Asia Minor. All the residents of Asia heard the word, Luke reports, which is an amazing thing. And he speaks of the extraordinary miracles that, that cloth that Paul touched was taken to those who were sick or uh, demon-possessed and they were healed or set free. And this was apparently surprising to Luke as he calls it extraordinary. And, and people are responding. And then the seven sons of Sceva want in, want in on this action and undoubtedly or likely with the wrong motives. It's never a good, good thing when we serve God out of the wrong motives. It's an issue of the heart, and God knows the heart. But they act in the name of Jesus. They make reference to Paul, and the demon-possessed man says, Jesus, I know, Paul, I've heard of, but who are you? And he beats them up, and they run away naked and wounded. The enemy is powerful. The community responds because they all knew about it, according to the text. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and many threw their valuable books about sorcery and magic and the arts into the fire. They responded with sacrifice and commitment. They're declaring their faith in Jesus and backing it up with behaviors and sacrifice. Again, these, these acts were not... Uh, grace imparting in and of themselves, rather they're evidence of their commitment to Christ. If you're a Christian, remember saving grace is free, but following Jesus has a cost. Let's pray before we begin in our next text. And I want to pray specifically for those who are enduring the earthquake and those who are lost in that. I was at a theology conference this week and some of our EFCA mission partners reported that uh, among those that were dead was a pastor and his wife who were serving there, and their 10-year-old son was the only survivor in the family. And that 10-year-old was saying to people how God refines us in our suffering. 
10-year-old. Some of these Christian families that survived it are hosting incredible numbers of people in their homes. Good ministry opportunity, but so much pain. Join me as we pray. Father, we come before you and we just are so thankful that you are a God who is mighty and holy and unparalleled and that we can approach you by the grace of Christ on which we stand. Father, we are thankful for the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we gather here today with freedom, and we're grateful for the freedom that we have in this nation and all who sacrificed to earn it. And Lord, we think of how good we have it, and we're just mindful of those who are suffering, and we think of those who were lost in these earthquakes and the families and friends and those who are grieving, those who have lost everything, we just lift them up before you. Father, for those Christians there who are trying on their own to survive, but let alone bringing in other people and ministering, we just pray that you would work in a mighty way. And we thank you for our ministry partners who are so aggressively serving and seeking to bless others. God, we just ache for these people. Father, we commit this morning to you, and we ask you to uh, bless the ministry over at East Campus this morning. Lord, we pray that you'll be with Pastor Wade as he shares, and we just ask that you would be exalted there as well. Father, we lift this church, this body of believers up to you, and we exalt you, and we desire that you would have your way in this place and in our hearts today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I've entitled my message today, Disturbed by Jesus. In in many respects, today's text is quite straightforward, which is great, but that can make preaching it a bit bit challenging, actually. As sermons that I've heard on this over the years uh, tend to just restate what is already somewhat clear in the text. And I will do some of that today just because that's necessary and appropriate. But I also want to draw your attention to a thread that I had not seen in my previous studies of this text. We'll get to that in a bit. And it might seem like a bit of a tangent. And perhaps it will upset you. Or maybe you'll love it. If you love it, send emails to markb at parkviewchurch.org. If you don't like it, send your emails to dfern at parkviewchurch.org. Org. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can be honest. But we will see here that when Christ confronts the status quo, the world will reject Christ and his people. So we who are believers, we must pray, Lord, make us courageous for the truth of the gospel and give us genuine eagerness to see a status quo disturbing movement of Christ in our time and place. Wouldn't that be great? A status quo disturbing movement for Christ. Today's text comes at the end of sort of the chronicles of Ephesus from starting in uh, the middle part of, of chapter 18 and ending at the beginning of 20. And this is where the event sat chronologically. So it makes sense that it lands here at the end. Uh, At the same time, it's clear that Luke sees this event as important in the broader story of the gospel and its public reception. 
Now let's start with these just first two verses here, uh, 21 and 22. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, I isolated those two verses because uh, they seem to be somewhat parenthetic to me. They introduce us to this powerful determination and and passion that that Paul will maintain uh, as he desires to continue this third missionary journey back through some of the cities that he had been to, and then to, to Jerusalem, and ultimately to Rome. He knows where he wants to go. And he highlights Jerusalem, but he adds, I must also see Rome. I believe that we can safely assume that this is a Holy Spirit-driven passion for Paul. There's a discontented in in this in his soul until he's done this. There's a, a certainty that he has more to do. I believe Romans 15 also tells us that he wanted to get back to uh, Jerusalem because he wanted to deliver aid from these Gentile churches to the struggling Jewish church in Jerusalem. Christ-following Jews in Jerusalem were removed from the synagogue and ultimately exiled from their people to, to a large degree. And they struggled greatly because of their faith in Christ. And Paul is likely using his connections in these cities that he's going through to raise the funds to help these struggling believers. The timing of this will prove to be in the Lord's hands and not his, but his determination will remain. We read here that he's sending Timothy and Erastus, and and that buys him extra time. And, And that's likely because we read also in Romans 16 that Erastus was the treasurer of Corinth, city director of public works. If this is the same Erastus, it perhaps Paul feels as though the fundraising for Jerusalem believers was in capable hands with both Timothy and Erastus. Just a theory. But this allows for Paul to stay longer. Now, let's review the events that took place. Let's start in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She, whom all Asia and the world worship, 
And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were, with, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. So let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Quite a scene, no doubt. I want to make some observations here. Uh, Paul's ministry, the Lord's newly formed church in, entitled The Way, is making waves. And this action then is causing reaction. Those who knew the truth of the gospel and the instruction of the Bible knew that what was happening was good. This was a good change, a shift from idolatry toward faith in the living God. In contrast, those who were there who were not believers, who did not understand, considered this a dangerous change, disturbing to the economy and to life as they knew it. I want you to hold that thought because I'm going to keep kind of circling around it. Luke writes, no little disturbance. I like the way he does that in this passage. Now understand, the trade guilds controlled commerce in ancient cities and were enormously influential. So you've got Demetrius, who seems to be the president, to use the terms we would, of the silversmithing guild or union. And Demetrius sees the writing on the wall about the well-being of his personal business, his personal finances. He's thinking if the people be, begin believing that gods made with human hands aren't, aren't gods, then we have a problem. Business is going to dry up. Think about what it's like when businesses dry up. Think about how hard COVID was on so many businesses. My wife and I, being very thrifty in nature, we took the first cruise after COVID let up and they allowed cruises. It was really cheap. We had the boat to ourselves. The, the people literally called it our private yacht. We were like, okay, we're, we're okay with that. But it was stunning to get off at one of the ports in Mexico 
and venture through some of the vendors. There were so few of us that these vendors were swarming and it was relentless to the point where I just wanted out of there. But in conversation with them, they'd been completely shut down. No income for that season. Can you imagine? So you can understand why it would be a big deal. Demetrius clearly sees that that Paul in the gospel ministry called the way, it's a real threat. It's dangerous to life as he knew it. And personally, I, I love this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ as God having taken on flesh. The living Lord in the presence of men and women. A powerful God with a heartbeat who's not made of precious metal or of stone or of wood. The one who defied the grave. It disturbs the idol-making industry, as it should, because an object made with human hands cannot possibly compete with a living God. And perhaps Demetrius was used to, to doing his business with the line out the door, and now he's wondering where everybody is. So out of fear, he gathers men of similar trade and stirs fear up in them. The financial impact of of the idol industry becoming slow. Shut down industries. We don't like it when we see that, right? It's uncomfortable. Businesses fold up. If you're struggling with this, I want you to just imagine for a minute that the University of Iowa shuts down. Or, or moves to Des Moines or something. Livelihoods in jeopardy, some of yours. Housing markets drop to nothing. Vacant buildings everywhere. I'm going to suggest to you that there's something highly significant in this. You could see how easily it would have been for Demetrius to stir up his comrades, right? And they, in turn, stir up the people in order to save their business. They draw on the community's passion for Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was one of the ancient wonders of the world. Artemis was thought of as the goddess of the hunt and was and is the most respected of all the ancient Greek mythological deities. It's thought that her name... And even the goddess herself may even be pre-Greek. She was the daughter of Zeus, twin brother of Apollo. And not only was she goddess of the hunt, but she was also known as the goddess of wild animals, wilderness, childbirth, and virginity. Also, she was protector of young children and known to bring and or relieve disease in women. In literature and in art, she was depicted as a huntress carrying a bow and an arrow, and the Romans called her Diana. Artemis, her temple, and the sinful practices related to her, as well as the commerce that belief in her generated, was of great importance to the people of Ephesus. So Demetrius and the other people have people in in hysteria. They're they're going crazy. This Paul in this movement called The Way will destroy not only our industry, but our economy and the worship of Artemis. 
This is enough to make the people go into a frenzy. But there's more. Well, I, I would like to suggest that it's because of the innate desire that people have for meaning and purpose, which I, I, I say points all the way back to the garden and the problems that ensued with sin. I'll say more, but the people are confu- in confusion and they're chanting. Can you imagine the intensity? These situations get dangerous very quickly. They cannot get to Paul, but they find Gaius and Aristarchus. And no doubt the the crowd considers them guilty by association. Sociologically speaking, angry mobs are very dangerous. You've got this collective conscious factor in there and the mob mentality, which is so, so threatening. Now tempting for these associates of Paul to cave into the fear of the angry mob. We don't even know what their response was. So Alexander the Jew is sent out to calm them, but the crowd seeing that he is Jewish, it doesn't calm them down because this culture as a whole had not differentiated between Judaism and Christianity. They put them all in one basket here. So ultimately it's the town clerk that has to calm them down with basic logic, assuring them that the courts could handle it. Now, it's important to understand that the relationship between Ephesus and Rome, and and as with many cities in Rome, Ephesus was a semi-autonomous zone. So they got to lead. Their own citizens could, could lead in many matters, but if they demonstrated they were not in control of their own affairs, the Romans then would step in and remove their freedoms and restore order the way Rome wanted it. Therefore, this riot in the town's clerk response must have been in responding to corresponding threats from this foreign religion on one hand and a riot from the people on the other. Here in this theater that would hold some 25,000 people. The political realities of the city of Ephesus, the same, this same venue that hosted this riot, also held lawful political assemblies that made binding decisions in a similar fashion. He succeeds in calming the crowd and dispersing them. And it's interesting to me that how God even protects his own through unbelievers who have roles of authority. Isn't that cool? Something that could be easily overlooked here is the passion of Paul. Look with me at verse 30 and 31. But when Paul wishes to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Once again, others step in to spare Paul. But notice that Paul wants to take this head on. 25,000 people all in this one area. I mean, he sees it as an audience and he wants to proclaim Christ to them. We have both his disciples and these officials, these Asiarchs, elected officials who were protecting him. It's interesting that he had friends in that level too. 
converts? Likely. We don't know for sure. But are we grasping what the heart of Paul is like? If not, I want to have you turn over with me quickly to 1 Corinthians 16 because we get a little more in insight on this. Look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 16. He writes, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Notice what he said. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me. And there are many adversaries. I might be going a little far here, but to me, it's like he's, he's putting those together. He's saying adversaries are a sign that things are very effective. A wide door of opportunities open to me. The ministry is great here, and there's adversaries everywhere. Well, he doesn't care. He cares about the wide open door for ministry. So Paul is sold out for the cause of Christ. Yes, he's had his time of discouragement where he needed the Lord's assurance or friends to come alongside of him. But here again, we see a man so devoted to the gospel that he has little or no regard for his own safety. Clearly, it's a chaotic and dangerous situation, no question. Demetrius and company are declaring the danger to their industry and to the worship of Artemis, but the members of the way are the ones in physical danger in this moment. Look at the hysteria we see in verse 32 there of chapter 19 again. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Hysteria without knowing why, isn't that crazy? I mean, it'd be humorous if it wasn't so sad. You almost envision them just going into this crowd, and they're all going, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You start doing it, and then you go over to a friend of yours, you go, why are we here? I don't know. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But doesn't that just speak of what it really means to be without Christ? People are in this crowd just joining in, the sh- in with the shouting. Different ideas, different things going on. Not really even knowing why. They're just doing their best to follow everybody. Everybody else is doing it, so we're doing it too. We're going to just jump in and start shouting. But see, I think it's a great picture of what our culture is like today. People choose to believe things just because others do. 
They follow what their professor teaches without checking it out. Or they decide their beliefs based upon a few popular things in the social media realm. And it's confusion. And impassioned confusion. You see, those outside of Christ, apart from God's intervention, will always find a reason to reject Christ because of the incredible power of disbelief. You realize we're living in a culture that that looks for a reason to reject the truth of Christ. For Demetrius, it's about financial loss or personal pride or public dishonor. But hear me now, the idols of the age will always try to find a way to disqualify the truth of the gospel and its emissaries. So consider this with me. People today do whatever they must to put their hearts and minds at ease. Stay with me. When people can settle into a routine and a system of some sort, it numbs the God-given discontentedness of their souls. When people can settle into a routine and a system of some sort, it numbs the God-given discontentedness of their souls. And I would suggest to you that the enemy loves this. However, when the truth comes in, it disturbs, it rattles the system and chaos ensues because people want meaning and purpose and even structure. I'm going to ask you to use your imaginations with me for a moment this morning. Don't worry. I'm not going to get heretical here, okay? There's a young man in Ephesus. He's very thankful to have a good job smelting silver for Demetrius. The skin of his young face is prematurely leathered due to working with the extreme heat, but it provides a good living for he and his family. He'd heard about these seven men being beaten by a demon-possessed man and people responding, exalting the name of Jesus. He'd even seen the smoke of a fire in the distance from some book burning. He asked around and he heard a little bit about this controversy. And the more he thinks about it, the more he senses that these molds that he pours this silver into are, are actually making something useless. And he asks himself the question, how can I worship the very thing that I make? In a God-given moment of clarity, he sees the foolishness of what he has built his life around. But this new reality comes with major issues. Now he must make some very 
hard choices. Hold that thought. It's an interesting chapter flow here. You've got these sons of Sceva who, who, who think they know something, but they don't. They think they have it. You've got these people who respond to that scene by, by thinking, I don't want anything to do with that, so I'm going to gravitate toward Christ. And then you've got these people who are in an uproar, who are in, in a riot, and they're chanting, and they're chanting because they refuse to accept anything different than the system that they have built around their lives. Because to change that system would be to disrupt everything they know. Matthew 7 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You're going, he's all over the place today. What is he talking about, right? What do we take away from this? God is uniting all things under Christ. As a church, we're to live in such a way that we proclaim allegiance to Jesus and watch the economic, societal, and false worship transformation. Think about it. Evil is lucrative, isn't it? There is money to be made from that which is idolatrous and sinful. Have you ever considered how much money flows through these sinful systems? You and I should understand that following Jesus should interrupt society because his followers are to no longer let culture dictate their lifestyle and their source of joy and purpose and meaning. The way we follow Jesus should challenge others in their securities and their objects of worship. And here in this passage, you see that following Jesus changes the economy, messes with vocations and securities and anything that is not of the kingdom of God. And again, I ask, has your faith changed your life? Following Jesus will cause you to count the cost. If your faith hasn't ever stretched you, you might not be following the right Jesus. You repent of a life that doesn't depend on Jesus. You repent of a life that doesn't require prayer. You repent of a life that doesn't require knowing God, trusting God, and worshiping God. And you repent of a life that doesn't require a dependence on the living Spirit of God. What if the truth of Jesus Christ is still in conflict with some of your systems of security and meaning and purpose? A little bit like our imaginary friend in Ephesus who has major decisions before him because this truth of Jesus cannot mix with this profession or these habits or these ways. I'm going to just let that sit in your soul. My time is gone. True re repentance involves being willing to put all things on the line, even your live livelihood. And we should not be surprised when the unbelieving world around us is disturbed by the truth of Christ.
and has the truth of Jesus disturbed life as you know it. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your truth and for your word. And Lord, we recognize here today that if the truth of Jesus wasn't disturbing to life as we knew it, then there'd really be no reason to gather. And Father, we thank you that in the midst of a sin-filled, chaotic world, there is life and hope and truth and meaning and purpose. And we know that it is in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those individuals here who might be struggling in some way with this, whether it's that first initial putting faith in Jesus or whether it's just wrestling through some holdouts, things that we're just not too ready to loosen up on because they give us meaning and purpose. Lord, help us understand that the ultimate purpose is found in our Savior Jesus, in your word. And Father, may you be the vision we need to live this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.